0: Jesus, we look to you right now. Today, our focus is on you. However we come in, whether we feel close or distant from you, we set our attention on the person that you are. You are loving and sacrificial. While we were still sinners, you pursued us. You lay down your life for us. Even when we are far off, you run to us. You meet us right where we are. You know what it feels like to walk on this earth, a deeply broken world. You experienced abandonment, suffering, and deep grief. You faced them all when you went to the cross. But because of your great love for us, you stayed on the cross. And you gave up your life to three days later say that you have overcome the sin of the world. And that you deeply want a relationship with each one of us. So today we focus on you. We pray that you meet us in this place. We individually and collectively as only you can. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to take some time to read our scripture for today. So if you'd like to open your Bibles or your Bible apps to John 20, it'll be verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, "Rabunai," which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Check, check. There we go. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lane, and I'm the lead pastor here at Red Hills Church. We're so glad that you've gathered with us. Uh, Today, we're gathering as followers of Jesus to celebrate a pretty big event that changed everything forever. The Creator God revealed to us in the form of Jesus, crucified and then risen from the grave. Now, for those of us who lead a life of faith in Jesus, this is a rhythm that we look forward to every year, and it's something really that we recognize every Sunday. But if you're not really familiar with this whole Jesus Church faith thing, rhythms like this can seem kind of strange, and I just want to acknowledge that. <clears throat> Christians can seem a little weird. I, I actually have a story that has nothing to do with anything I'm going to talk about today, except that it shows how weird I am, and it happened around Easter Sunday. Uh, so I used to be an unpaid church intern about 10 years ago uh, at, a, at a church in Orange County, California. And for their Easter Sunday, they wanted the, we met in a community center. So we wanted the space to look a little nicer than usual. So they constructed this thing that was really popular for outdoor and we, outdoor weddings at the time. It's called a moon gate. Have you heard of this? They're like these things. Ours didn't look like that. It looked a little different. But, uh, you know, <laughs> oh, it's for you. Um, so uh, we, we uh, looked at this, at this design. We thought it was really, really cool. Um, I lived with five other 22-year-olds in a two-bedroom apartment at the time. And let's just say that our interior design prowess was questionable. Uh, most of our furniture we got for free on Craigslist or we found on the side of the street. I wish that was a joke, but it's not. And so after Easter was over, they were like, hey, we're going to throw this moon gate away. And we said, nay. Let us take this beautiful piece of architecture home. We will adorn our apartment with this moon gate. Needless to say, it did not even fit through the front door. So we put it on our front porch, which, you know... Sitting out on your deck with basketball shorts or in your guest service's uniform, it's a fancy affair. And you need a Moongate to show off the elegance of this, right? Um, well, our landlady called us, uh, let's just say, not thrilled about our design choice, and told us that we could not, in fact, have this in front of our apartment. And so I did what any one of you would do in my situation, and we took it inside for target practice. <laughs> now, some of you might think, Lane, you did not shoot guns in your apartment. No. Of course not, shot blow darts at it. What do you think this is? Um, Let's just say several uh, bad decisions later, uh, we ended up breaking a window in our living room, and let's just say we didn't get our deposit back. Um, Anyways, that crazy story is just to show you that uh, sometimes Christians can be weird, and it's not because they're Christians, it's just because they're weird, and they happen to be Christians like me. I think Christians come in all shapes and sizes, from weird to cool, and I think that that shows uh, something really amazing. Is that Jesus doesn't just come for the cool people, that Jesus is for everyone, and he's been incredibly patient with me. And there are those of us in the room who come from all sorts of different kinds of experiences and backgrounds. Some of us are more scientific and more logical and reasonable in our thinking. There are those of us who have doubts about the legitimacy and the historicity of the Christian faith. And I actually want you to know that I'm really grateful for people who are built like you in this world. I really, really am. I think a lot of people assume that you need to choose between reason and faith. But some of the wisest and most loving people in my life have been people who hold curiosity and reason in one hand and faith and mystery in the other. So wherever you are, wherever you find yourself in this journey, we want you to know that it all belongs and we're really, really grateful that you're here. Now, my experience has been that the evidence in favor of the historicity of the scriptures is quite robust, but today is not actually going to be about that. You've kind of been invited into our living room of the Christian faith. And for now, I'm going to ask that you set that conversation aside. Today is not about evidence. Today is about gratitude and celebration. Today is about telling the story of redemption and love and hope that we find in Christ Jesus. And so I'm going to invite you instead to ask this question. What if this really did happen? What if Jesus really did die and really did rise from the grave? That changes everything. It changes everything. There's a call and response declaration that's been a part of church tradition for centuries, wherein a person will initiate by saying, He is risen, and everyone within earshot will reply, He is risen indeed. Oh, some of you are there. All right, so let's try it all together. He is risen He is risen. He is risen
0: indeed.
1: Amen. Okay, so before we unpack the scripture that Kate read this morning uh, about Jesus' resurrection, we first need to talk about the events which led to Jesus' death. For those of you who were able to join us for Good Friday, we sat in the uncomfortable and horrible reality of Christ's crucifixion and his sacrifice. And it was a painful, horrible thing that Jesus chose to endure. But who was this Jesus, and why did it matter? Well, in simple terms, we believe that Jesus is God. He's God, and that he appeared to us as a baby in the first century Palestine over 2,000 years ago to an oppressed people group called the Jews. Now, the Jews had been conquered many times up to this point, and the people of what used to be called Israel— are holding out hope that one day their God is going to send a Messiah warrior king who's going to overthrow the powers that be and establish Israel as the highest kingdom forever. But Jesus was this kind of unexpected and subversive extension of God's salvation. He had a much bigger plan than anybody was ready for. And this is because a lot of people didn't really understand the kind of victory that Jesus had in mind. He wasn't wasn't just going to deliver one nation out of governmental oppression. He had plans to deliver all of humanity out of the oppression of evil and sin itself. And this is what we celebrate today. Today is all about hope. Hope. All of us in this room, from people who faithfully follow Jesus to those who angrily deny his existence and everything in between, whether or not we want to acknowledge it out loud or not, we are all in search of hope. Hope. We are all in search of something or someone that can provide and rescue us into something better than what we have around us. None of you need me to stand up here and tell you all the ways that our world is broken. Anyone who is awake can see that this world needs to be saved. I mean, just look at the news headlines that we've had in 2023. We've had crazy, devastating earthquakes and natural disasters. We've had wars. We've had school shootings again and again and again. People are suffering and dying at the hands of other broken people in a very broken world. That's real. But those of us who put our faith in Jesus, we choose to believe that Christ inaugurated salvation of the world, that he began it by suffering a horrible death on the cross and then by defeating that death by rising again. But why? Why is it that this miracle is the pathway to our salvation? Why did it need to be this way? Well, for that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the story. If those of you, uh, some of you may be familiar with the Genesis story, the creation account of the universe and human beings, where God creates everything in the universe and he says that it's good. And then he creates human beings to steward that creation, and he says that human beings are very good. You know, we have this common trope in the church, capital C, that we say, you know, good news begins with really bad news. It's kind of like a bad sales pitch, right? Like, everyone has hair loss. We have the solution for you. But actually, I think that our really good news doesn't start with bad news. It actually starts with really good news. And here's what I mean by that. In this creation narrative, human beings lived in this beautiful garden called Eden. And everything in the scripture depicts Eden as a sanctuary of a concept that we call shalom. Say shalom. Shalom. So shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. But this word carried so much more meaning than our English translations. Shalom represents perfect harmony, perfect peace and relationship between God and human beings, between human beings and one another, and between human beings and creation. This is shalom, everything set right. And in this garden, in Eden, God and humans were in loving and perfect relationship with one another. They were in shalom, and they had been untouched by these things we call evil and sin. You know, before sin entered the picture, there was no death or decay Can you even fathom such an existence? I have a hard time. There was no death? Because death is a natural part of life, right? Like we can't even have new life apart from death. Cells can't replicate apart from decay. How do we have life? I don't know. All I know is this. Death may be a natural part of life now, but it was never an intended part of our existence. It was not something God designed for us to experience because God is the giver of life. And apart from the giver of life, apart from the source of life, we experience death. So we find ourselves in this place where our souls were longing for shalom. We find ourselves in this place where deep down, we know something's not right. Something's amiss. Where none of our man-made solutions are providing salvation that we need. None of our man-made systems are giving us the peace that we know that we want. Something's up. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis where he writes, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The world we find ourselves in is a drastic departure from the one that God intended for us. And the reason is because we shattered Shalom. We walked away from the giver of life, from the source of life. And because of that, we have entered into death. So, The answer to having life is relationship with God. The answer to having life is union with the life giver. So the entire mission of Jesus can be summed up in these words. God loves us and wants to be with us forever. God loves us and wants to be with us forever, which means each and every one of you that has walked into this room today, no matter what circumstance or or situation you've come from, no matter what background you have, no matter what understanding of God that you have, What we believe is that Jesus deeply loves you, like personally, and he wants you to be with him forever. Everything that Jesus has done, everything that God has orchestrated, everything that we see in the scriptures leads up to this one truth that God wants to be with you because he loves you. That's what we're talking about today. But in order for that to happen, what we messed up has to be set right. The powers of evil and sin and darkness need to be defeated because when sin enters God's good design, it sets us on a path to destruction. Apart from the garden where we have flourishing in life, we move into the dirt and the dust where we are oppressed by death. So in order for God to defeat the powers of sin and evil, in order to reverse the curse of death, he chose to suffer under death, to endure evil. Because of his great love for us, Jesus took the full weight of violence and hate and evil that the world had to offer, and he allowed himself to be struck down by it. Think about this. The author of life, the creator of the universe, chose to allow himself to be killed by us, by his creation. And by defeating death, by coming back to life, he began the work of restoring Eden, of restoring Shalom. And this was the last thing that anyone was expecting. Because partly, people didn't really know who Jesus was. It took them a long time, some would argue centuries, to really figure it out. And a lot of us still have a hard time wrapping our heads around it. They were kind of expecting Jesus to be what they wanted him to be. They wanted him to deliver them out of oppression, governmentally. They wanted him to be a teacher. We brought man-made solutions to a man-made problem. But meanwhile, Jesus, being God incarnate, had a completely different plan. He actually had no plans to overthrow the Roman government. That's a disappointment. In fact, he died for the Romans. Are you kidding me? You died for them? For the Romans. For the people that have been oppressing us, persecuting us, taking away our freedoms, taking away our faith. You died for them. You know Jesus taught us that a pathway to shalom is to love our enemies. But that's a sermon for another day. We're not ready for that. <laughs> Let's get to the text. So we come to our passage today and we come upon a woman named Mary. I love Mary. I really do. There were lots of Marys in the Bible, the most well-known probably being Mary, the mother of Jesus, but that's not the Mary we're talking about. We're talking about Mary Magdalene. Now, I like to say that Jesus was a very cheeky guy, which I know you don't hear Jesus described that way, but he was, because he often empowered women and elevated women in a culture where they were not allowed to do very much, and they were not regarded even in the legal system as reliable witnesses to historical events. It's kind of a bummer. And yet, Mary ends up being the first witness and proclaimer of what we now call the gospel. So if you think women can't preach, you can talk to me later. We'll have a conversation about it. Mary was a woman who had previously been oppressed by demons. We don't know much about her life before she met Jesus, but we do know that when she met Jesus, she was delivered from this demonic oppression. She began to follow Jesus faithfully. And then her and a bunch of other people who were kind of uh, with this group, they were providing for the disciples and Jesus' group financially and logistically. And when most of the other disciples fled during the events of the crucifixion and hid because they were afraid, guess who stuck by Jesus' side? Mary. While Jesus hung, dying, bleeding out on the cross, abandoned and alone, guess who was still there? Mary. She watched it all happen. Now, after Jesus died, they took his body and they had to bury it in a nearby tomb, which is actually a really big deal because crucifixion was a method of execution that was reserved for enemies of the state. This wasn't how they killed everybody. They killed people who they thought were a threat to the Roman government because the accusation was that Jesus was a political insurrectionist. And these kinds of people were not respected by Rome. They wanted to put them in their place. So public mourning and grieving for these individuals was actually illegal under Roman law, and they were thrown into these common graves without respect. But in this case, there was a follower of Jesus named Joseph who had some influence, and he negotiated a special arrangement with Governor Pilate to have Jesus' body put into a special tomb. There was an exception made. So now he's put into the tomb, because night had fallen and they needed somewhere to put Jesus's body because it was about to be Sabbath and they needed to wait until Sunday. He was crucified on Friday, Sabbath on Saturday, and they needed to wait until Sunday to prepare his body for permanent burial. And this is where we get to Mary, who Sunday morning, she's brought the spices and the oil to lovingly prepare the body for burial. And when Mary comes onto the scene, she's mourning, right? Let's not skip to the end of the story. Everything has been lost. Everything. Everyone that's been following Jesus, everyone that put their hope in him, everyone that believed that he was going to be the next person to take us out of oppression. He had died. We lost. What did this all count for? What what were we doing this whole time? It all led to this? And Mary, still clinging to her affection, still clinging to her grief, she goes to her teacher, her deliverer, the man that she followed and believed in, the one that the world regarded as this big political controversial fe- uh, a person. This was someone who held deep personal significance to her. This was her Jesus. And she gets to the tomb, and she sees that the stone at the entrance has been rolled away. Typically, what would happen is that they would seal the stone with wax to keep the stench of decaying bodies on the inside. And so in this case, Jesus being a political figure that he was, Was also being guarded by by two guards that so that people wouldn't come and steal his body so when she comes onto the scene she's expecting to see soldiers and a stone in front of the entrance the stone has been rolled away and the soldiers are gone what conclusion would you draw someone's been successful at stealing the body of christ and this was deeply troubling for her all she wants to do is pay her respects all she wants to do is give jesus dignity where he'd been humiliated and brutally crucified at the hands of her oppressors. That's all she wants, and now she can't even do that. So she sees this from a distance, and I imagine her coming upon the tomb site with the spices and oils in hand, and and she gets a little closer, and she feels that something isn't right. She sees the guards are gone. She sees the tomb entrance is open. She's shocked. She's appalled. She drops everything, and she runs to go tell someone. She runs to go tell, in this case, her friends and fellow followers of Jesus, Peter and John, who John is the author of this passage. Now John outruns Peter to the tomb, which I think it's funny that in this horrific moment in history, John wants to include the funny detail, oh, by the way, I'm faster than the competition. (laughs) Read the room, John, it's not the time, right? But John gets there first, being as young and virile as he is, and he sees the empty tomb. Now, John and Peter both freak out, and they run home. Um, Mary, anyone? They just leave her at the tomb. That's not cool. She's still there, grieving, thinking the worst has happened, and now she's alone. So Mary leans into the entrance of the tomb to see inside, and what she sees is just really weird. It's really weird. The linens that Jesus had been wrapped in are there, but they're still wrapped. If somebody had stolen Jesus's body, why would they unwrap it first, gross? And then why would they leave behind these fine linens, the only thing of monetary value behind in the tomb? It doesn't make sense. And then she sees two people <laughs> in the t- in the grave. Why? <laughs> That is so weird. And and the the Bible tells us that these are angels. It doesn't say whether or not she thinks they're angels. I'm guessing not. She's probably disoriented and shocked as any of us would be, right? And the angels ask her a question, which to her must seem annoyingly obvious. They're like, why are you weeping? And she's like, "Um, (laughs) they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where he is. And then, and then, everything changes. Mary turns away from the grave, the representation of death, and she turns towards Jesus, the giver of life. And in this moment, she notices a man standing there. I imagine she's probably still crying like I would be because I cry over everything. And she's not making eye contact with this man, who she assumes is just the gardener. And the gardener, this stranger, asks her this annoyingly obvious question again, why are you weeping? But then he adds a question and he says, who are you looking for? Okay, A few things I want us to notice about this. Uh, First is the use of questions. Questions are all over the Bible, and Jesus asked a lot of questions. He loved questions. He loved to not give people answers and just keep them guessing. He loved that. And if we go back to the garden in Genesis, when human beings sinned, they hid from God in their shame. Adam and Eve were ashamed and fearful of what they'd done, so they hid from God when they heard him in the garden. And God asks a question. God says, where are you? Where are you? This is so much deeper than just what is your geographical location. God is saying, where is my creation? Where are my children? In this moment, we abandoned God in Eden. We separated and broke and distorted shalom through our sin. And even in the midst of that, we see that God's posture towards us is to reach his hand out to us and invite us and to say, where are you? And now we see Mary introducing a great reversal to this story where God had asked Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? Now Mary poses the same question to God and asks, where are you? And now Jesus asks two questions together. He says, why are you weeping and who are you looking for? And the reason why he asks these two questions back to back is because there is a connection between these two questions because the reason behind all of our weeping is actually because of who we are looking for. The reason we have grief and mourning and suffering in this life is because shalom, our relationship with God, has been broken the one whom our soul is looking for, that connection has been disrupted. So I want you to hear this. There is nothing our souls long for more than the embrace of God. There is nothing our souls long for more than the embrace of God because every desire we have on this earth points to the ultimate desire that was fulfilled in Eden. Every unmet need that we have is indicative of our broken shalom that we're supposed to have with God. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. Augustine writes that humanity is restless until we find our rest in Him. There is this built-in, hardwired longing in each and every one of us to be unified with the divine love of God, to be reconciled to the Creator. And we are left on this earth scrambling and trying to figure out how to fill that void when there is only one answer, and it is divine connection to our creator. So as Jesus poses this question to Mary, I believe that God poses this question to us. He says, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? What causes the grief and pain and suffering in your life? What desires and longings do you try to fulfill on your own, but you're never truly satisfied? What bottomless cup are you trying to fill? What coping mechanisms still leave you feeling anxious? What addictive behaviors still leave you feeling trapped? What achievements do you accomplish that still leave you feeling purposeless? Who are you looking for? Friends, I believe that our greatest epiphany rests in this truth, that in Jesus, we have had all along the things we have strived for in our own understanding with futility. In Jesus, we have had all along the things we have strived for in our own understanding with futility. I also want us to notice that Mary supposes that Jesus is the gardener, and this is not a random choice made by the author, John. Hebraic storytelling is steeped with intentional imagery. Everything is there for a reason. There's metaphor and themes all over the place. I've heard someone describe it as like there's hyperlinks everywhere. Every single word in the Scriptures is connected to something else that's happened in the Bible. The problem posed to us by the Scriptures, the theme that we see all throughout everything, is that when human beings rebelled against God, when Adam and Eve abandoned Shalom, they abandoned their mandate to steward creation. Eden was left without a gardener. Shalom was left without a steward. And this is why Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as the second Adam, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. So in this quick turn of phrase that she thinks he's the gardener, we're seeing that he's transforming everything. That Jesus is turning the grave into a garden. That Jesus is fulfilling the mandate of Eden as the second Adam. And Mary gets this privilege of being the first witness to the resurrected Christ. In the same way that Jesus was born to a humble woman named Mary, in his new life he appears to a humble woman named Mary. The first person that Christ appears to in this male-dominated society is a woman. And as Jesus fulfills the role of Adam, so Mary is given the dignity robbed of Eve. Where Adam blames Eve for the fall of humanity, Jesus entrusts Mary with the hope of the world. Oh, you're not ready for that. Come on. (laughs) So we see in this scene the transformation, the renewal, the restoration of everything, everything. It was still dark when Mary first comes to the tomb, but as the sun rises in the timeline of the story, so does her epiphany and understanding of what is taking place. Eden is being restored. The grave is becoming a garden. There's a book called The Epic of Eden written by a wonderful scholar named Dr. Sandra Richard. I'd highly recommend it. And in it, she writes this, God's original intent is his final intent. Eden was the perfect plan and God has never had any other. His goal was that the people of God might dwell in the place of God, enjoying the presence of God. This is all our heavenly father has ever wanted for us. And Mary doesn't know who she's talking to until she hears her name, Mary. And I think this is so powerful. You can imagine the emotion in this scene, right? She has accepted that everything she's longed for, all of her hopes and dreams have died with Jesus. And in a moment every single expectation, every single understanding she has is turned upside down or right side up, and she realizes, my Rabbani, my teacher is alive. He's alive. She doesn't have the epiphany until she hears her name. And here's my word for all of you. Some of us know Jesus as teacher. He wants to be so much more than that. Some of you might be really familiar with church and religion. What's cool is that, yes, there is this cosmic uh, salvation that's happening here where the whole universe is being turned right side up and everything is being redeemed. And in the middle of all that, guess what? Jesus is running after you by name. He's able to do both, just so you know. He's able to have this crazy cosmic story where he's transforming everything, and all of time and space transcends anything that we could do in our little hundred years on this earth. And also, he's intimately aware of every detail of your life, and he wants to be with you. He's capable of both. And maybe you have yet to hear Jesus call your name. You know, you've been following Jesus. You're around him. You're familiar with his teachings. You have good intentions around him, but you have yet to really know him the way that he wants to know you. He's not just calling creation to himself, he is. He's also calling you by name. He wants to be with you forever. Where in your life do you feel that longing for resurrection power? What has died? Is it your marriage? Is it your relationship with your kids? Is it your freedom that's been robbed by an addiction? Is it the shame from a mistake that you just can't let go of? Is it a trauma that happened to you that robs you of joy where everyone else seems to be happy? Is it a career that has had lots of success but still leaves you feeling empty? What is it? Where do you need resurrection power? Listen, I believe that through the gospel, Jesus has promised us this, that when we follow him, he will resurrect our bodies. That he will give us new life. That he will redeem everything that's been broken one day. Yes and amen. But also, he's interested in bringing you resurrection power right now. He wants to resurrect your joy and your peace and your hope right now. We are not just people who cling to a a sign on the dotted line and say, okay, I've got my life insurance and I get to be with Jesus forever. No, Jesus takes us and he says, hey, guess what? You get to be my shepherds of shalom. You get to be the gardeners of Eden with me. I'm going to partner with you in restoring the world the way that it's supposed to be. We don't just gather in our holy huddles and we say, I'm glad that I love Jesus and one day I'll be with him forever. No, forever starts right now. So Eden is going to happen forever one day and it begins with you and me today. It begins right now. Wherever we go, Eden is supposed to follow. Wherever we put our feet, heaven is supposed to exist. You know why? Because Jesus went to the disciples after he resurrected, and he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is another callback to the garden where God breathes his life into the dirt and makes human beings alive. He wants to give us new life right now. He wants you to receive the Holy Spirit and go out into the world and partner in a way that changes everything forever. He wants to forgive you, he wants to redeem you, and he wants to give you purpose. That's what he wants for you right now. I think there are those of us here that really have been on a journey and perhaps you've been around Jesus a lot, you've been around church a lot, but there's something about the resurrection hope that has been made real for you. I want you to know it's not because I'm a good public speaker. I think I'm pretty good, but it's not because of that. Oh, thank you. It's not because of that. It's because God is here. The presence of God is here. And he is pursuing you with his love. That's why you feel the way that you feel. Not because we play good music or prepare good sermons. That's not why. He has been recklessly pursuing you with his love and he wants you to know that you can be with him. So, I want us to take out our communion elements. If you are someone who follows Jesus, this is something that we do together to remember this great truth. If you're not a follower of Jesus, please feel no shame in this whatsoever, but I'm going to ask you to reflect on these and not to take them. Because this is something that we do as people who faithfully follow Jesus as a remembrance of who he is and what we are called to do. That when we receive the broken body and the blood of Jesus, the symbols therein, that we also receive the mandate of Christ, that we also receive the spirit of God, that we receive our partnership with him in Eden forever. So if you have not yet decided that you want to say yes to Jesus and you're thinking about doing that today, maybe you're from out of town, maybe you're visiting from another church, you go somewhere else on a regular basis. I want you to hear this and I want you to not take it the wrong way. I don't care if you come to Red Hills. I I, I don't. <laughs> I would love it if you would come here. I would love to, to hear about your story, to learn about how God has uniquely put you together to know about how he's redeeming the things in your life. I would love that. But if you're not going to be here at Red Hills, that's okay. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. And sometimes it helps just to have some people who can begin that journey with you. They can pray with you. And it's good to get connected to a community of people who are also seeking to know Jesus because we encourage one another. So if you want to do that here, awesome. And if not, we bless you on your way and we say thank you for your new life that you've begun today. Heaven is throwing a party. So when we come to the bread and the cup, we remember that everything that Jesus did, he did because of his deep love for us. He broke his body because he loves us. He spilled his blood because he loves us. And he asked us to take these symbols in remembrance of him. So, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, This is my body broken for you. Take it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, This cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you would like to begin your journey with Jesus for real, or you want to reawaken your journey with Jesus because it's become cold, there are going to be people that are here at the front, or maybe you just want resurrection in your life over a certain situation. Maybe there's a broken relationship or a sickness or something that you want prayer for. We're going to have people at the front after the service, so as people are clearing out, you can have a little bit of privacy, you can talk to them, and we'd love to pray with you. And next week, baptisms are happening, and if you want to declare what you've done today with us, we'd love to celebrate with you. So let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for who you are. I ask that everyone in this room would encounter you in the way that you want them to encounter you, that we would know you and be transformed by your love. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and worship.